Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, this is Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, you have to help us. I'm calling from Happy Harbor, Rhode Island. We're being attacked by Starro, the giant outer space supervillain starfish with a highly unimaginative name. Help us, Wonder Woman. Okay, has it detonated an atomic bomb and absorbed its energy? Yes. How did you know that? It's a thing. Okay, I can give you today, tomorrow, and Friday, but I'm in Chicago all next week. I don't understand. Oh, I'm not with the Justice League of America anymore. Most of us are freelance now. This is really great timing, actually, because I haven't booked any gigs lately. I mean, I get that it's not great you're being attacked by a starfish. It ate a whole middle school. Mm, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. What's the budget uh, that you have in mind for this job? $1,500. I'm not getting a family of raccoons out of your garage. This is an evil, giant outer space invertebrate that can spawn asexually like a hammerhead sharks in the British royal family. I would need at least 2500 Aquaman quoted us 2200 You're trying to get me and Aquaman bidding against each other? First of all, Aquaman is useless. He couldn't save you from Tory spelling. Second of all, all right, fine, I'll do it for two grand. We'll need a W-9. You wouldn't rather do this as cash? Wonder Woman. Okay, forget I said anything. I'll come right over. By the enlarged prostate of Zeus, where did I save the PDF of my W-9? Freelancing sucks. I can't even go fight the starfish without getting all my paperwork in. The rest of you listen to this show about the gig economy. And now he moonlights as a dermatologist, Colin McEnroe. Which doesn't really make sense when you think about it, because I probably could make more money as a dermatologist full-time than I could moonlight as a radio, a public radio person. I, don't, I didn't think that through very carefully. Actually, in all honesty, that um, intro was really easy to write, and this show has been sort of interesting for me to think about, because for most of my life, I've, I've been one of several kinds of freelancers, um, and that has included what I do now, which is I do this full-time, but I mean, I have a pretty... Uh, widespread freelancing career on top of that. I am trying to find the PDF of my W-9 to get it to somebody right now. I am waiting for a payment, payment on something that I handed in in 2013. Um, but I have also, in my, at other times in my life, for a brief, a brief period anyway, been a full-time freelancer. And so I know, what, I know whereof I speak a little bit, but I don't really, because we're talking about so many different things here when we talk about freelancing. Anyway, we're going to talk about this shift in the economy. Uh, in which so many formerly full-time positions are now displaced into the world of the gig economy, the freelance economy. And we're going to start out here with Professor Gerald Friedman, Professor of Economics and Chair of the Department of Economics at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and Professor Richard Greenwald, Professor and Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Brooklyn College, CUNY. So, um, 
Professor Gerald Friedman, I'm going to start out with you. One of the overarching questions here would be, as we see this trend towards fewer full-time employees, more people who are contingent workers or freelancers or whatever we want to call them, is has anybody been able to kind of quantify how much of this represents simply employers shedding FTEs, getting rid of them because they're just they're, they're too much trouble, they're too much expense, and how much of them, how much of, the, of this involves choice. People sort of say, oh, no, actually, I'm going to leave my job as a public school teacher or, you know, an actuary, and I'm going to work as a freelancer because I like that idea better. Is Do we know how much of this is volition and how much of this is imposed? We, we don't have a direct measure of that. Nobody has gone and done a, a Gallup survey of people asking that question. At least I don't know. I am unaware of any. But we do have a sense of that by looking at the time trends for when the gig economy of freelance work, uh, part-time, involuntary part-time work, when that has expanded, when it has contracted. I mean, there have always been some workers who've chosen to work part-time and some workers who've chosen uh, to work freelance. Um, but the real expansion in those numbers came started in the... Uh, early 1980s, when the economy was doing very badly, there was a lot of unemployment, companies were in a position to hire people cheaply on the free market, um, and uh, started looking to replace their permanent FTEs with part-timers, gig workers, etc. Um, and it, uh, the use of these part-timers um, and gig workers expanded through uh, the mid-1990s, and then it declined. Um, there are surveys by the Bureau of La- by the Census Department um, of types of employment where they've tried to estimate the size of the gig economy, um, and it contracted a bit uh, when we had full employment in the last years of the Clinton administration. Um, and from there, it increased, and there's uh, abundant evidence um, that it's expanded dramatically since the the Great Recession of 2000 began in 2007. Yeah, and I wonder about that, whether that particular thing represents a specific kind of sea change, too. So 2007, 2008, we have this recession, and then we start talking about, eventually start talking about a recovery. And I think recovery meant yeah. to us in the past that jobs would be coming back, the full-time jobs would be coming back. Uh, and But it looks more this time like, well, some of the low-paying jobs are coming back and a few of the higher-paying yeah. jobs are coming back. But there's really kind of almost this permanent hardening off of yeah. that contingent worker se- yeah. yeah, Well, there are two things going on. One is, this is, in terms of jobs, this is the weakest economic recovery since World War II. We've had about 12 or 15 recessions since World War II. The recovery from this one is the weakest in terms of jobs. It's the strongest in terms of the stock market. The stock market is doing better than ever. But jobs are coming back very slowly, and the jobs that are coming back are, as you said, disproportionately the low-wage, uh, part-time, a few hours here, a few hours there type of mic jobs rather than real jobs. Um, um, and so- that's, uh, the change is that you know, employers used to want to lock workers in because mm-hmm. they were afraid that, well, if we need somebody and we have to go onto the, the outside market, we won't be able to get anybody. Right. When you have full employment, that's your fear. 
But now we're in a stage of, uh, you know, Amer- the American economy, the neoliberal economy for the last 40, 50 years, where uh, employers are pretty confident that they'll always be able to get people on the outside. Um, as we go along here, by the way, if people want to call in, we're going to talk later in the show to people who, who have made this move. Um, we're, they may disproportionately represent people who feel happy and successful about making this um, move <laughs> as opposed to uh, people who don't. But I think we'll hear from those people, too. Uh, the phone lines are open. We're live here in the, uh, in the afternoon. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Professor Richard Greenwald, one of the things that you've done is attempted a kind of taxonomy uh, of this this whole market of contingent workers. It's not just one kind of worker. Uh, you've broken it down in different categories. So so run us through your categories. Well, I mean, I uh, thank you very much for having me and talking about this topic. It's it's a very very important one. I mean, you know, the as as uh, Gerald said that we don't have an adequate understanding of who these people are, and yet we live in a culture that celebrates the sort of entrepreneurial spirit. So I mean, there are. Uh, people doing this for all hosts of reasons. So there are the independent contractors, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, the uh, the folks who are who are doing it as, you know, uh, to support themselves. They're doing it either for, you know, uh, creativity or for, uh, you know, their their brand identity. Uh, but many of them are actually doing it because they have no other choice. You know, there are the moonlighters who do this. These are folks who might be working nine to five, but are doing an occasional job on the side, uh, and they're competing in this marketplace. Um, there's, uh, you know, also the temporary folks who are doing this. So folks who are in between jobs, uh, still searching for a full-time job, but they're doing this consulting until they can, uh, you know, find something else. Uh, and then there are the folks who are doing it, and they think they're running small businesses, or they are running small businesses. They're a, free, they're a small business of one. And that makes it very difficult to capture a sense of, or the pulse of this uh, you know, group, because it includes blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, professionals, those who aspire to be business owners or think of themselves as entrepreneurs, and, and those who are you know, uh, sort of trapped in this endless cycle of, of running from gig to gig faster and faster. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, Gerald Friedman, it seems to me pretty obvious why employers uh, have made this kind of paradigm shift, right? I mean, there are just so many ways in which uh, they can be a lot more flexible. They can lay people off very easily and get rid of people very easily. They don't have to go through uh, the, the, the procedures for, uh, for firing or layoffs. Um, they, can, they don't have to offer benefits. Um, there's a whole bunch of advantages, and it well, makes them more flexible. Are there any advantages left to having FTEs? Yes, yes, yes. And that's the thing I was um, going to say. Yeah, there are advantages, but we also have to explain why this wasn't the strategy followed by most American businesses uh, into the 1970s, um, because there were our advantages to having FTEs. Um, you can train them. They learn to work together. and They become more productive by working together. Um, they, uh, they're there when you need them. You don't have to go looking every day to hire people at the factory gate or whatever. Uh, but there are times when it's more convenient, when, it, when you can, if you know there are going to be a lot of people at the factory gate willing to work for very low wages, then having those FTEs is, starts feeling like a burden. On the other hand, if there's nobody waiting outside looking for work, then you're really glad you have those FTEs. Um, and also, if you're you know, thinking about having 
um, a first world company, um, a company that's going to be producing products that can compete with Germany, then you need skilled workers, you need trained workers, people who are used to working together, people who have become more productive over time. Um, on the other hand, if you're looking to compete with you know, some other economies that I won't mention that produce low-quality you know, crap stuff, then you don't need such skilled people, and you may be looking for just low-wage people. So it's a matter of corporate strategy. Uh, do you want to be Mercedes? Or do you want to be? Do you want to be making Mercedes, or do you want to be making Yugos? <laughs> All right. So, Richard okay. Green- Greenwald, let's go over to the worker side of this. One way of looking at this is we're really kind of getting back to the Garden of Eden, this original American notion of work, which more closely resembled, I think, an opportunistic job shop that could turn on a dime, go after some new project. I'm sitting here in Connecticut, you know, the Connecticut Yankee, uh, this notion of the, the tinkerer. Uh, and, and, and it's a little bit of the E.F. Schumacher dream, right? You know, we're going to throw off the shackles of Frederick Taylor's turn-of-the-century time management, wage slavery, and 50 years later, Peter Drucker's vision that workers and work could be managed scientifically. We're not, we don't want to be managed scientifically. We're getting our freedom back. We're going to own our ingenuity. We're going to become mobile and nifty and able to maximize our skill sets. That's the positive spin on that, uh, on this on this trend. How, how, how well is that working out? I mean, you know, getting back to and tying this into what uh, Jerry just had said, you know, the, the market, you know, for corporations is really either in the high end or the low end, right? So they're spinning off really high-skilled uh, sort of the, the the kind of work that is very specific and in the moment that they don't need to have that kind of worker on 52 weeks a year. They might just need to bring them in for you know two months. Um, and then there are all the low skilled uh, back office things that can be done much cheaper, right? So for the high end, highly skilled, highly sought after professional, this is you know probably a blessing because they can uh, float from company to company, gig to gig, and they can get paid exceptionally well. But that's a very, very small percentage of the folks who are doing that and living this way. The vast majority of the folks who are doing this are barely getting by. Uh, they're struggling. They're worried about, you know, uh, they're, they're paying their rent. They're worried about, you know, retirement. They don't even have retirement plans. They don't have health care benefits for the most part. So, so this is a very precarious you know, group of of workers. And I think what has happened culturally is that we've revived this notion, sort of the Horatio Alger notion of it's all you. You know, it's pluck and luck. If you're in the right place at the right time and you have the right knowledge, you can make your own opportunities. And what we're forgetting about is the structural limits uh, to this. The more and more people who enter this marketplace, and it's, you know, we're talking about nearly you know, 30 to 40 percent of the American population, working population, the more people are entering it, the, lo- the more competition, the lower the wages. So the fewer people will be able to rise to the top. And those that will, will not be doing it, you know, uh, you know through, uh, you know, the, uh, the great idea necessarily. They might be doing it because they've learned how to figure out how to how to capitalize on the competitive nature of that market. So, you know, one of the things I've noticed is folks who've talked about being models themselves as being successful uh, freelancers have created an environment where they're actually hosting or or uh, marketing to other freelancers. They're creating co-working spaces. They're creating apps 
that freelancers will use. Uh, so their success is based on the continued pressure within their own sector. Um, you know, I just uh, just to sort of stay with us for a second. Um, uh, well, actually, let me just switch gears. I can come back to it. So, um, uh, Professor Gerald Freeman, let's let's think about the person who either wants to become a, a freelance uh, independent worker or thinks he or she might have to anyway. For a long time, there was a bar that you had to clear, and the pole that you needed to clear it was health care. You know, that, that, that I mean, I, I could, uh, at this point in my life, I can remember certain moments where I thought, well, there's, there's no real reason for me not to simply be selling my services to various kinds of companies, Is, but except that I do need health insurance. I need it for myself. I need it for my family. It's irresponsible not to have it, and it's prohibitively expensive for me to get it any other way except through my employer. So, um, so how big a difference? So, the ACA, in a, in some senses, could be the deal maker for all this. Do we know yet how big of an impact it's having that way? Uh, well, the jury is still out on that. I mean, we definitely do not know. Um, uh, the ACA has been in a, uh, the the. Uh, the exchanges have been in effect for a little more than a year, so it's way too soon to say. Um, I know that that is one of the hopes, and people who have advocated universal coverage through a single payer plan, uh, like myself, Mm -hmm. have written in to the plans that, well, this will liberate entrepreneurial energies. And I'm sure that there'll be some of that. Um, I mean, I've said so, so I have to back it. I have to agree with it. Uh, But I think that most of the drive for... Um, these gig jobs and the independent freelance, I, I think that's mostly uh, people trapped in those types of employments because they can't get full-time work. Uh, most people, I think, and the evidence, as I said, of the late 1990s uh, supports this, that most people, if they can, want a steady job with a regular paycheck. You know, most Americans live from paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, the health care uh, health insurance is one bar, but the real, the largest bar against independence, striking out on your own, is income security. Um, you know, as as you said at the beginning, um, and as Wonder Woman ran into, well, you know, what are you going to live on next week? How are you going to pay your rent next week? Uh, the thing that makes freelance work so attractive to the employer is that they don't have to pay you all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the very thing that makes it risky for uh, individuals. We've had, you know, there's good evidence that the variability in income uh, that people experience in the American economy has grown dramatically um, over the last 30 years. And a big part of that is the growing numbers of freelance people and people working part-time, varying hours. You know, one day you may get two hours, and the other day you may get four hours, whatever. You know, and... Um, and that's very hard for people to work to live with because your rent doesn't change from week to week. Uh, you know, your other expenses don't change. The health insurance piece is one part of it, and that's good, um, but it's only one part. Um, and and uh, Richard Greenwald, do you feel? I mean, I kind of asked this question of Gerald Freeman at the beginning, but I'd like to hear you on this too. Do you feel as though the progression we're on right now is essentially an irreversible one? In other words, you know that that ten years from now or fifteen years from now, no matter what happens, we're not going to have a higher percentage of the workforce back in FTEs than we do right now. 
Well, you know, I'm a historian, so I take that long view of things. So I wouldn't say that 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 anything is 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 inevitable per se. But we're on a very slippery slope right now. If we're getting to the point where almost 40% of the workforce is approaching 40% is living this way, at a certain point we're going to tip too far structurally to to push it back in the other direction. And you know, I I worry about the implications for 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 sort of policy and, and standards of living. I mean, one of the things that, that I, I've done in my research is I've interviewed a lot of freelancers and asked them to keep logs of how many hours they actually put into projects. And what is astounding to, astounding to me is that they, you know, for the most part, are they're billing what they think is a, a logical rate for the project, but they're not counting how many hours it will take them to compete complete that project. So they're they're actually working many more hours, uh, you know, than they had before. So I was talking to someone who recently, uh, you know, uh, was let go from their firm, uh, wound up freelancing, and is making close to what they made before. Um, and when you factor in how many hours more they're working. Uh, their hourly rate is much lower, so they're they're working much much faster just to be near where they were before, and I'm, most of those people I've interviewed want full time work. It's just in many of their their lines of work that 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 doesn't exist, uh, or it's it's very very rare. Uh, and the younger folks I speak to uh, sort of assume that that's not going to come around. That, that was something that their parents' generation had. Uh, that they might not have it, so they're trying to figure out how to make do with, you know, what they what they can get, uh, and that means redefining what success looks like. Uh, and they're the generation that talks more about freedom uh, and flexibility than the the uh, generation who were in their 40s and 50s. So, um, Jerry Friedman, I want to come back to, um, I mean, I think it's sort of worth exploring just for a moment anyway, why this happened. We talked a little bit about why this happened, but, um, but you know, when you look at it the way that you were talking about it at the beginning of the show, so maybe you can see it sort of towards the end of the 70s, even going into the 80s, you've got stagflation, uh, you've got the first signs, really, that this particular model for employment isn't necessarily going to work all that well, all of the time anyway, and then you get these fits and and starts and, and, and things get better and, and things get worse. But we see a couple of things happen. You alluded to one of them, which is that some of the work just got farmed out overseas. I mean, if you can get your data entry done a lot more cheaply in Taiwan or someplace, then you're probably, so a lot of companies are going to do that. That's number one. But I'm also wondering whether there's a number two. And maybe is the number two um, a more shareholder-driven business, uh, uh, a vision of business? In other words, I'm wondering why this is so permanent, why, in fact, if, in fact, most people, as you say, would rather have a steady job, why can't they have one? And and is it because business changed its whole attitude about sort of who its primary obligations were to? Oh, I think that's definitely part of it. The uh, stakeholder model where uh, CEOs would be responsible to the customers, to the shareholders, to the workers, um, has been replaced by a profit above all model, uh, driven by quarterly profits and uh, the stock price. Um, some of that is we've changed the form of uh, impl- of uh, CEO compensation. CEOs get much more of their income now from um, sh- uh, stock options that tie their personal income to uh, the stock performance and the profits of the company. 
lay off a lot of people, stocks go, stock prices go up. Uh, replace full-time employees with part-timers, Wall Street likes that mm-hmm. um, because it raises your short-term uh, profits. Uh, for the companies and for the economy in the United States over the long haul, that's not necessarily a good thing um, because you're undermining the generation of the human capital that we need uh, for productivity growth in the future. Um, people become more productive when they work together as part of teams. Um, and, for example, my mother-in-law used to be a copy editor at Norton, where she w- actually went to an office, mm-hmm. and there were other copy editors there, and they would talk to each other at lunch, they'd go share ideas, they'd walk into each other's office to get help, um, and they built a culture around doing a good job as copy editors and tr- and. Uh, becoming better at the work by them, uh, by working together. Uh, nowadays, copy editing, I don't know who the copy editor does on, is on a book of mine. Somebody in India or someplace, um, somebody who doesn't know anybody else and just works in their own office or in a Starbucks. And they don't get better. They don't become more productive. And our economy um, is going to suffer from that. But in the short run, the publisher is making more profit. Right. Uh, All right. We're going to have to grab a break here. Uh, Thanks very much to uh, both of our guests. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be talking, still talking to economists and professors, but we're also going to be talking to freelancers as well. Chips for dinner. That's a meal. It's a freelance life. All right. We're back. Uh, we're talking about the freelance economy, the so-called gig economy. Uh, with us is uh, Professor Richard Greenwald, professor and dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Brooklyn, Brooklyn College, CUNY. Uh, now we've got a lot of callers here, and we've got some actual freelancers whom we have located, or Julia Pistel, who is the producer of the show, has located. I want to grab a few of the callers first, uh, and so I can clear out a few lines, too. Here's uh, Jason calling in from Deep River. Hi, Jason. You're on the Hi. air. Hi, yeah. Um, this is really interesting stuff today. Learning a lot. All right. I used to be a freelance writer, a music critic, and found it tough to make money, so I started doing freelance PR on the side, and now that's my main business. <clears throat> and uh, basically my comment is that in my line of work anyway, I'm finding that freelance is a bad word. Like I, I basically try not to ever tell anyone that I am freelance because you know, I'll run into clients who say, oh, we don't need a freelancer for this, we need an agency, and it's to me, it seems like the difference is purely semantic. Like, I have a network of other freelancers. We can do the same work that agencies do. What does it really matter if we're in an office altogether or not? And if I'm able to hide that fact or just not address it, then I'm perceived and paid a lot differently. The, you know, Richard Greenwald, this is spot on to one of the, the – sort of the, it's sort of your last category, your final category in the taxonomy that you did. These um, uh, people who are you know, shops of one or two people who are either freelancers or they're small-time business people. And do you, do you agree that the distinction is essentially a semantic one? You know, I, I, it, it, it is on some level, but, you know, perception becomes a reality. So for a whole generation of folks, that early wave starting really in the, the, the late 80s and 90s who were sort of shoved into, into freelancing, they, you know, uh, they thought of themselves as con- – they referred to themselves and were referred to in the press as consultants. And that had a really – 
you know, bad taste uh, for people because it, it essentially meant that they couldn't find anything else. So many of the folks who were in corporations and the corporate culture in general in the United States looks at, uh, you know, at most freelancers that way through that generational lens. So they feel better when they're hiring an agency. Uh, they're hiring another co- company uh, because it's not fly-by-night. It's not one person working, you know, in in their spare bedroom. Uh, it's something more permanent, more real. Uh, but it's in some ways an illusion because many of these, you know, if you look at the and, and Jerry can talk about this. If you look at the numbers of job creation, uh, m- many of those new jobs are actually just, you know, what we're talking about, these individuals who are sort of creating a business of themselves and they're employing themselves. So they're the new employee in, in, in the new uh, calculus. So, uh, you know, I think eventually that will turn. The younger folks I'm speaking to who are, who are freelancing are referring to themselves as freelancers. They're, they're, that's that's the, the name they embrace. It doesn't have the same negativity for them that it does for someone who's in their 50s. Yeah, I think that's true, that we have sort of, and you really are almost getting into um, a sort of status recognition uh, pattern. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a generation of people who, who do, I don't know, they react to certain kinds of status presentations. Um, I'm thinking of the, the TV series Better Call Saul, where he's constantly trying to conceal the fact that he doesn't have a secretary, that he's a lawyer who's working out of the back of a nail salon, you know, and he's faking the voice of his, of his receptionist. There's this whole idea, if you're somebody, you ought to have an office, you ought to have a receptionist, you ought to have all this stuff. But it does seem as though we're at some generational tipping point on that, where, in fact, somebody who's working out of uh, some kind of co-working space or something something like that, could be much cooler and more desirable. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the co-working spaces, when they first started, uh, they were designed to become uh, or to, to essentially give the illusion that they were actually offices, right? You had your own telephone number. You had a receptionist who answered your phone and took your messages. You could bring a client there, and they would never know that it was a shared office space. That seems to have gone away. For the most part, when you walk into a co-working space today, it looks like a co-working space. It looks, you know, open, and there are people coming in and out, and there are, you know, various business signs all over the place. So it's more chaotic, and I think, you know, corporate culture likes things organized and neat. The chaos of the market, of the freelance market at least, uh, frightens them, all right, even me- though they created it. Let me grab a call here from Julio in New Haven. Oh, there we go. Uh, hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. So I just wanted to add that um, I'm I'm working in this thing called the Fair Work Week Initiative, uh, and what we're trying to do is to, is talk about what is um, what is given when it comes to notice to our, to hourly workers, and we just released a report. And just to give you some numbers, there's about 800,000 hourly workers in the state of Connecticut, and there's about 300,000 of them that don't get any type of notice. So they get less than a week's notice, meaning that these are people that work in Target, Burger King, and other places that don't understand their schedule, meaning in many ways they are part-time and are at the mercy of their employer because if they don't come into work, they'll get fired. But if they don't know their schedule, they can't plan their schedule so they're in this like vicious cycle where they can't really do anything to further themselves. And this is because in many ways they don't have any control over what's happening with their lives. Yeah, and there, there's even been some attempts to redress this at the legislative level, right? I mean, there's uh, attempt, some attempt being made to, to look at this whole area of, uh, of the kind of gray area of employment. Yeah, and that's more or less what we're working on right now. Like we're, we have a couple of ideas on how we could improve it. 
Um, we are talking about providing notice to people. Um, we're talking about uh, stopping on-call, which is becoming a big issue with um, healthcare workers. Uh, but this is like the future, and it's a sad future because people can't really plan. So it, end up, and it ends up being us, the taxpayers, the one who tend, end up flipping the bill. Because if these people don't get hours, they can't get a, another job. So at the end of the day, if nothing happens, you know, we, the taxpayers, end up paying and subsidizing what, what the big companies are doing. So, Richard Greenwald, this is sort of an interesting point, that there's, there's this whole other sector of the labor economy that isn't exactly freelance. They have jobs. And the, the term notice has, has, has morphed, right? It's mutated. Notice, getting notice used to mean you're getting fired. Now getting notice means having any idea from day to day, from week to week, what schedule you'll be working. Yeah, I mean, I would argue this is a you know a continuation of a freelance sort of economic culture, right? So uh, starting in the 1980s, uh, much of the sort of back office work, and particularly in in uh, you know white collar areas, that had been uh, made into projects. I mean, Drucker talks about this. So you know, you're you're dividing up and subdividing up like like like. We had done uh, as a nation to the assembly line work, the blue collar work. We we subdivided the work out uh, in the white collar world, so it was easier to sort of divide up. Um, and that on call mentality, you know, the new logistics system uh, for inventory also meant a new logistics system for people. And so retail is is a perfect example of this. They have now, you know, they put all their workers on call. They treat their their hourly wage wage workers as if they were freelance workers um, and you know if they don't show up they don't show up they don't get paid they're told when they have to work there's not uh, there's there's no relationship there anymore it's all transactional and all economic and the pressure is con- a continued downward migration of of wages so i mean we're we're you know if you're looking at contingent work, and if we look at freelancers, I would say that there's a that that in that you know calculus are wage workers, blue collar workers, day laborers, and the high paid IT and finance consultants. I mean, because they're all working in a contingent economy. They just have some have much less control, much less less flexibility, and the risks are greater for them. All right. Uh, we're going to talk to some freelancers now. Uh, some, uh, and as I said, they may disproportionately represent the happy sector of the freelance pie chart. Uh, it may be a smaller sliver than what you hear here, but we're going to start with Brittany Danielle, uh, journalist, editor, and novelist who's passionate about telling stories, I, I says here. Uh, but so Brittany Daniel is somebody who, who, who left a job. You were um, a full-time public school teacher. Do I have that right? Yes, I was. And and so why did you decide to make this change? Um, well, being a teacher is extremely, that's a whole other conversation, but it's extremely difficult um, and emotionally and, and physically taxing. And for me, I had always loved writing. And my last year in the classroom, I started freelancing alongside with teaching. And increasingly, um, I found that I was much happier doing the thing that I was passionate about, which was writing. Um, so I decided to make the switch. And how has that worked out? Um, it's worked out pretty well so far. It's definitely different. Um, you definitely have to hustle a lot more, especially being a freelance writer. And uh, 
another one of the, the guests, I believe, is a writer, so he can speak to this as well. Um, but the rates, you know, rates are, are fluctuating. You have a lot more people who are willing to write for free. So the competition um, among writers to just get paid um, and, and, and have people value your work is something that is definitely a struggle. But for me, it's been um, a more uh, a healthier experience than teaching. And and so, but when you were teaching, you had health insurance, um, yeah. you had some paid vacation, uh, you had some things that you'll never have, have easily anyway as a freelancer. As a freelancer, you're going to have to go out and buy your health insurance, and, and there's sort of no such thing as paid vacation uh, for a freelancer. No. Why, doesn't that, why doesn't that bother you? Um, I mean, it definitely, I've had some, you know, stress around financial issues um, if I don't work. I don't get paid, so there's definitely a um, you. You just work all the time. I'm always tethered to my laptop. Lately, I've been trying to make a concerted effort to break off on the weekends. Um, is it all possible? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely for me. Again, the benefits outweigh the the distress of teaching. Teaching is a very difficult position. Um, a lot of people coast through it. A lot of people. Uh, they just show up to collect a paycheck. I didn't want to be become that type of teacher. Um, I really enjoyed my students, so I wanted to make sure that we were both happy. You know, I didn't turn into the the angry teacher who's yelling all the time, and uh, I didn't also turn into the depressed person who is taking off tons of time from work because she doesn't want to be in her classroom. Good point. All right. Um you know, I want to just go back to Richard Greenwald for a second here. One of the questions that, that I have, and I don't know that you have an answer to this spring-loaded and ready to go, but as we talk to freelancers uh, and contingent workers and whatever we're going to call them, um, one of the questions that I have is, can they ever get a leg up on some of the processes that seem stacked to their disadvantage? And, and I mean, for example, there was a, a, a thing going around on Twitter recently called Talk Pay, where people are just sharing how much they get paid for stuff so that workers begin to collect more information about what remuneration is, maybe can at least organize themselves at that level uh, of, in, of information sharing. And, you know, the notion of a freelancer's union, I know it gets talked about and it's been tried, but it seems almost kind of counterintuitive somehow. Are there ways in which this huge, disparate, and often very different group of workers who, who, whose only commonality is they don't have full-time employment jobs um, can in some way organize themselves or share information so they get a leg up here? Well, I, you know, I think you, you, you raise, a, a, you know, the, the question, you're right, is, is, is somewhat loaded because it, it gets to the, the, uh, the sense of how folks who are living, you know, as freelancers see themselves, right? Um, and, you know, the Freelancers Union is a perfect example. Uh, in, in, you know, it, it consciously, uh, when uh, it was created, uh, Sarah Horowitz chose the name Union, uh, and it didn't really play well. One could imagine with the, the, the that early group of freelancers who really who, who saw themselves more as entrepreneurs, as small business people, as producers, not not employees, not workers. So it gets to this notion of of, of how people see themselves. And as a historian, what What's striking to me is if you go back into American history, into the uh, early 1800s, you see, a, a, in some ways, a, a, a parallel. 
Right. So at the birth of capitalism, you have small shopkeepers, individuals who are making their products by hand, handcrafted, artisanal, right, uh, for a customer directly. And, you know, that seems to be now the ideal, right? The small, handcrafted, entrepreneurial, artisanal product uh, or maker. Uh, our co- I mean, I'm, I'm in Brooklyn, and, and it seems like the entire borough is obsessed with this. Uh, but you, you have individuals who see themselves as the makers of something or the, uh, uh, the masters of some skill. The question really is how are they defining their relationship to work, uh, you know, and how are they defining their relationship to uh, income, and how are they defining success? More and more of these, the folks I'm interviewing are defining success uh, not just economically, Right there, it's about you know blending family and and uh, creativity and security. So they're willing to compromise in ways that maybe uh, you know 20 years before people wouldn't have been. So there, many of folks are seeing themselves successful. Uh, they sense that 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 it's just a workaholic world. So uh, always working seems to be the new norm. Everyone else is doing it, so it doesn't seem as if it were a huge, huge burden. Uh, but one of the things I think that, that, that folks who are successful have is they see this as something they're doing for the long haul. They see this as a, an, that they need to continually improve their skills to narrow their market niche. Uh, and then they need to connect to a team of other freelancers in either slightly related ways, so as your caller said before, so they could package themselves collectively as uh, as something larger than just one person. Uh, the folks that seem to be able to do that and, and, and recognize uh, that there's needs that they can fill seem to be doing better than the folks who are just trying to do the same thing over and over and over again, because that market becomes more and more crowded. And, and what that means is there's a sort of a, one would argue, a professional, uh, professionalizing culture around freelancers. There are hundreds of books, webinars, podcasts, uh, you know, you name it, that, that are trying to sell the magic bullet to freelancers. If you do these 10 things, you do these eight things, you will be successful. And in not once in American history I could think of have we come up with a successful formula that works every time. Um, well, uh, first of all, Richard Greenwald, thank you so much for your time. When we come back, uh, two freelancers, Chris Morgan and Caitlin Kelly, will tell you the eight magical things that you can do that they have done to become incredibly successful freelancers. Working from home today. I gotta record the credits now. Oh, hey, Heat is on TV. Follow me. Oh man, it's the scene with De Niro and Pacino together. Do I still have leftover Chinese food in the fridge? Yes. Seven years in Folsom. In the hole for three. McNeil before that. Oh man, the sheen is so great. McNeil is tough as they say. What was I supposed to be doing? 
Oh, credit. Today's show was produced by Julia Pistel and me, Kion Wolf. We both appeared in the intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Val Kilmer. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton show, so, oh, I love this part. You see me doing thrill seeker liquor store holdups with a born to lose tattoo on my chest. Oh, I got to get back to whatever no, uh, website wnpr.org/slash Colin on tomorrow's show. Betsy Kaplan explores the future of musical theater, and now. Back to Colin. All right. Uh, we are doing a, a freelance show or, or show on this kind of economy uh, of people who don't work at full-time jobs, don't get uh, their benefits from their employer, some of whom are prospering and some of whom are not. We've talked about all, some of the pitfalls, but let's talk to two people, uh, two more people who I think are basically a pretty happy freelancers. Chris Morgan, freelance 3D artist and animator for Lego, Nickelodeon, and Priceline. Caitlin Kelly, freelance writer for the New York Times, uh, author of books and adjunct uh, at Pratt. Um, so, Caitlin Kelly, I'm going to start with you. Um, you are a freelancer, uh, but you're a freelancer with many different jobs. I just named a whole bunch of them. How, how, how is that working out in general? Are you you're pretty happy this way? Uh, it works fine. I mean, I think the freelancers who are going to thrive have, to use the jargon, multiple revenue streams. Uh, the fact that I teach means I actually get paid every two weeks, which is wonderful. The challenge of freelance, which many freelancers know, is that you're often paid late so the ongoing issue is my mortgage payment is due the same day as everybody else's, but some people like to pay 30, 60, 90 days late. Um, so having a balance of incomes with different payment periods really makes a difference. Oh, yeah. What's the longest you've ever had to wait? I almost guarantee you I could beat it. Um, well, frankly, and I hope all your listeners pay attention to this, I don't wait. I send a lawyer's letter, and it works. Oh. Uh, I have actually a two-year wait right now with one of the magazines I <laughs> Yeah, no, I I don't wait. No, uh, I just I'm very tough, and I send a lawyer's letter. And every time I send a lawyer's letter, I get paid very quickly. um, I I don't tolerate it because it's not professional. I've done the work. I've given you what you asked me for by contract. You owe me the money. All right, you may have yet another job of managing my career because I I would never have the guts to do that. No Uh, problem. Happy uh, to help. All right, so uh, I'll just uh, invoice me for uh, all your consulting. Uh, I I, I will. I will. (laughs) I know you will. I can tell that already about you. So. a lot by the hour, but feel free to email me. All right. So, Chris Morgan, um, you're doing a, a different kind of work, uh, free, uh, freelance 3D artist and, and animator. Um, in, in general, first of all, why, why not with your skill set? I'm assuming you probably could get full-time work somewhere. Is it a choice that you've made to be a freelance animator? Um, actually, no, it's not. Um, I was actually laid off from a studio position that I had about a year ago, and um, I've been looking for work. Um, but unfortunately, in this area, there's not a lot for my industry. So I've been doing freelance since I got laid off. And, uh, yeah, so it's not really what I would prefer to be doing. I would actually prefer to be in a studio, to tell you the truth. Um, I just prefer the stability of it and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, the argument um, the argument can be made, though, that, that you can – I mean, if you're just only working for Nickelodeon or whatever, then you're only working for Nickelodeon. You can't – it's not as easy for you to do a project for Lego or Priceline. Is, is there anything about that, that that's rewarding? Um, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of my, my industry is the fact that I can kind of work for a whole bunch of different things and learn a lot from each company that I work for and do a lot of just different kinds of work, which is really rewarding for me because – like in the past, I've worked military simulation. I've done some video game stuff. I've done some commercial stuff. So it's, it's really exciting for me to be able to be in all these different facets. 
Um, Caitlin, uh, Kelly, I'm wondering, you know, you're obviously, you're very well organized, I can tell. You've kind of got this figured out, and you're pretty uh, assertive. Um, Do you feel as though anybody could do what you're doing right now, or is it kind of a risk for for other people? Would other people maybe even benefit from having a slightly more organized structure or a freelancer's union or something that would help them do some of the things that you do? Uh, That's a great question. I think some people are very suited to this life, and some are very unsuited to this life. Um, I know to the penny what I owe. I know to the penny what is owed to me. I know exactly what my APR is. I knew uh, the hour and the day that my American Express card payment is due. I only have one card. Um, you know, I'm not OCD. I'm just fairly well organized when it comes to money. You can't be sort of disheveled and freelance or, or it's going to be a disaster. You have to be super professional because your clients are looking at you thinking, well, you know, do I really want this person to work with me because they're going to make me either look good or not? One of the really important points, and I've heard you discuss it in the show, it's really essential, is to network with people at your level or above. Um, There's a lot of new hungry people who don't know what they're doing. Good luck to them and God bless them. Um, I'm in an online writers group of 2,700, 2,700 women writers, uh, many of whom have no idea what they're doing, some of whom, like me, know exactly what we're doing. And every day we exchange information, who's paying, who's not paying, who's completely hopeless to work for. And without that, I think you're really lost. I think any ambitious freelancer has to network, again, with smart people who know what they're doing, and that's going to help you. Otherwise, you're just kind of out there on the ether, and, and it's very difficult. Um, Chris, uh, you know, you're saying that ultimately you'd like to go back and, and have a full-time uh, um, position somewhere. Do you think that will change? I mean, let's say that in, for another year you don't find that, but for in another year maybe you pick up some of the skills and networking things that, that Caitlin's talking about right now. Can you imagine a scenario in which you sort of say, oh, thanks, but no thanks? Um, I mean, I can't say no. I mean, who knows what the next year will bring, you know? But I mean, I definitely I, I agree with her as far as having that that giant network. I, I have a, a ton of really talented freelance artists that I'm always in contact with, both on Facebook and other social networking websites and stuff. And they're constantly sharing their expertise and what they've been through with clients and everything like that. And it's it's definitely a big help to learn from them. I think I just I really I miss the stability of having that you know not necessarily nine to five job because in my industry I mean I could work. 15 hours a day, but it's just nice to have the knowledge that I'll have that paycheck at the end of the week, especially, you know, I mean, right now it's just my wife, myself, and my dog, but yeah, there, if there's know, kids, like yeah, family, it, and it, it's it, nice to have that stability for that. It does get different. Well, Chris, I hear you, and I hope uh, that you get what you want. I hope everybody gets what they want, and thanks very much to Julia Pastel for producing today. Murphy Brown is on. I love this show. Murphy, it's for the animals. Think of all those cuddly pandas. Oh, right, the pandas. 25! Crap, I forgot to do the last word.